Policing Crime features conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Jeff Asher has an analytical background with the CIA and two police departments. He's now a go-to person for the national media on issues around national crime trends, data reporting and crime statistics. We discuss the spectacular failure that's been the launch of the National Incident-Based Reporting System and how we might be able to fix it. Welcome to Reducing Crime, I'm Jerry Ratcliffe. If you've recently tried to make sense of how much crime happens in the United States, well, good luck with that. For as long as you've been alive, you know, unless you're Jeff Alpert, nearly every police agency in the United States has reported crime figures to the FBI in a format called UCR, that is, the Uniform Crime Reports. And then when it was long past useful, the FBI would publish that data about nine months after anyone cared. Well, now we have a new system called NIBRS, that is, the National Incident-Based Reporting System. More nuance, more complexity, more data. And so it should be awesome, but it's not. It's a cluster shambles of biblical proportions. At the moment, we really have no idea from the FBI whether crime was up or down in 2021, and we probably won't know about 2022 either. Yeah, it's that bad. So to make sense of it, I spoke to Jeff Asher. Jeff is a nationally recognised crime data analyst and co-founder of the data analytics firm AH Datalytics. Jeff spent years as a crime analyst with both the City of New Orleans and Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office. And prior to that, he worked on Spook Street as an analyst for the Central Intelligence Agency and Department of Defense. Jeff's analyses have appeared nationally on data journalism website 538, the New York Times, the Atlantic, and many more. Jeff holds an MA from George Washington University and a BA from the University of Texas. I caught up with him at the annual conference of the International Association of Chiefs of Police in Dallas earlier this year. As you'll hear in the middle of the podcast, it happened to be right in the middle of a game of his much-loved Norlin Saints. Terrible timing on my part. This is your first time having a booth at IACP. It just took me a week and a half to walk across the entire exhibition <laughs> hall and then to track you down and find you. Well, we want the dedicated clients. We want the people that... Oh, my God. If I had warrants out for me, the best place to hide <laughs> is somewhere in the exhibition hall at IACP because, honestly, God, it's impossible to find anybody in there. The eighth of 77 rows is quality. Yeah. Depending on where you are, as you say, if you come in from one side, you're close to the front. If you come in from the other side, you're uh, way in the distance that nobody's ever going to get to. It's nice because either the person coming is someone you know or the person coming has chief on their badge. You know, like, if it doesn't start with C, you know, chief, commander, captain. Yeah, no, right, yeah. I see so many of these people, and as I'm walking <laughs> past them, they're looking at my badge. They have that sort of expect and hope look, right. and then they see Professor go, oh, he's got no fucking money. Yeah, it's like, it's like just ignore him. Yeah. Why is this guy here? Yeah. Well, good stuff, and it's nice to finally catch up with you, because we've been trying to sit down and do this for a while. Your career has been really interesting, because you, you've ended up doing data analytics and really providing important service, but you never started here, did you? How did you end up with the secret squirrels? Well, it has been, I guess, a non-traditional career path. I was a senior in high school on 9-11, and I kind of got a service bug in me. And so I went to college at Texas and knew I wanted to do some sort of government work. And so I started with DOD, was getting my master's in D.C., was fortunate enough to work for CIA for five years, and then kind of got the service bug out of me. Government work has that effect, doesn't it? It's like it was, you're all idealism until you actually work for the government. Good, <laughs> holy shit, how much paperwork is involved? It was great. It was fun, but it was uh, difficult. 
you know, either you're doing it for five years and then you're getting out or you're doing it for 40 years and you're retiring. Right. And I sort of made the call that it wasn't going to be everything. And my government work and my 20s were both over. I wanted to start a family. I wanted to be near my family. So dragged my fiance and then wife down to New Orleans and have a very analytic skill set. Because in DC, you have sort of this skill set that every person has is master's degree. They've taught me how to write. They've taught me how to think. They've taught me how to analyze. And did they turn those skills onto anything useful? Were you working on anything fun? Yes. We're not going to go into any of that. Oh, <laughs> sport, sport. <laughs> Get the bleeps ready and I'll start talking. Yeah, as we are at ICP. There's got to be, somebody's got to be listening here at some point. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I came home to New Orleans and New Orleans is like the opposite of DC. And that, that's just anecdote, anecdote, anecdote throughout government. And nobody had my skill set as opposed to DC where every person has my skill set. So I managed to finagle a job with the police department, which was a good intro, I think, to this line of work. They hadn't had a crime analyst, an actual crime analyst that wasn't just some random person that they called an analyst in decades. Right. Didn't really know how to use one. So often it ends up being, and I, I don't mean this in a disrespectful sense, whoever's bouncing around doing sort of clerical work in the police department takes the job of crime analyst because it's a pay bump from where they are, but they don't have the skill set for they, it. They can put the papers together. They can put together a couple of slides. And it, it's very tactical. It's almost like a detective assistant. I want to know where all the vehicle burglaries in the district are. Right. And it's heartbreaking because you then see that they get lumped in together with all the really highly qualified crime analysts that are out there with good degrees and really strong analytical skill sets. Yeah. I think it makes it a struggle for organizations like ICA in terms of moving the field forward because everybody's at a different level. And so much of it, as I've learned, is just about the hierarchy. Where is the analyst within the hierarchy? Are they in a broom closet where they do nothing? Or are they bureaucratically stationed next to the chief and they can add analysis and analytic value? And I think so often, especially in agencies that don't have established crime analysis programs, it's the broom closet. Were you also with New Orleans Police Department? Was that during the consent decree? It was the very beginning of the consent decree. How much did that change things? For me, I don't think any. I think with every agency that goes into a consent decree, there's that initial thought of, well, we're going to change a few letters on our policies and it's going to be over and we'll be out of this in 18 months. Yeah, that's not how it works. It's like, <laughs> it's like the, you know, the soldiers marching to World War I saying we'll be home by Christmas. And <laughs> so I was at the very beginning. There was a lot of hesitancy. After I left, they created a crime analysis program. My friend and partner now, Ben Horwitz. Professional became, work partner, we should say. Yes, business partner. And so Ben was their first ever director of analytics, which is kind of what I had expected to be able to start up when I went there, but they weren't there yet. And it wasn't until I left that they got there. And so started working on my own. I worked with sheriff's office sort of in the suburbs of New Orleans part-time, had my first kid. And so then all of a sudden my wife wasn't such a big fan of self-employed consultant that doesn't have a lot of big clients and is trying to build a business. Carries a lot of risk. Yeah, it does. Only people really understand that it's real nickel and dime stuff at the beginning when you're trying to start a business. Yeah, it was very difficult. It took a good two or three years to where I had enough clients where I could stop working for anybody else. Was really working with the New Orleans City Council as their public safety consultant, doing a lot of dashboard building, writing reports, analyses of the criminal justice system in New Orleans. And then in 2019, Ben left NOPD and we started our company, H Datalytics. And now we basically do what we did for police departments and really what I did for CIA in terms of that ability to write and analyze. And we give that to mostly small and medium-sized agencies. <laughs> I just started giving my pitch. No, 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 it's fine. I get it. The, uh, <laughs> I, it's interesting because you're now at the forefront of an area that's I think, carries with it great benefits, but 
also great risks because dashboards, I think, are really important for transparency of data and transparency of information. But they also come with a risk because I see agencies that get way too fixated on what happened yesterday and the day before. Where were the dots yesterday? And I'm sitting there saying, I don't care where the dots were yesterday. Show me where the dots have consistently been for the last six months and for the last year. Can you build that kind of more strategic capacity into data systems that people can understand? Well, that's kind of our entire objective is not to build dashboards for dashboard's sake, but to build dashboards that do storytelling that are sort of complex. They look pretty. You, you, too often you see agencies will put it out and they did nothing to change the default colors and it's like, you know, lime green and... Whoever designed Microsoft Graph, the basic default colors, they need to be beaten soundly. But people take no interest in just how it looks. And I think right. that building something that looks pretty and also you've put a lot of thought into what can this do? Is it just a dashboard that's showing one thing or is it a dashboard that you can, you know, break down by time frame, by police district, by shift. And so you can sort of pick out what are the fun stories. We have a traffic camera dashboard that we built for the city council. There's one camera right off of the interstate and the camera catches, there's like, it starts really high when they first installed the camera. And then you can see in the, a big gap with this giant pothole developed across the entire street and nobody could go 35 over it. So you're, you went from like 20 a month to maybe one a month for three or four years. And then there's this big six to eight month gap where they fix the street and then people could then speed over it. And it's fun to, to be able to see that in the data, but it's also the type of thing that I, I think you're absolutely right, that people are too dashboard centric in that dashboard is a solution rather than what you can say from a dashboard, I think can be a lot more important. Yeah, but what I'm taking away from that is in New Orleans, you fix your potholes in three to four years, and that's a sort of target level that Philadelphia can only dream of. <laughs> well, that was one pothole. There's <laughs> way too many where that, that doesn't exist. And this was an egregious one that you couldn't drive over. Yeah, that's still Philadelphia potholes. I mean, <laughs> we got potholes that you drive into. They have their own micro environment and climate and different sure. kind of wildlife and an escarpment at the far end. You climb them to get to the traffic lights. Yeah. <laughs> We, at some point, we've got to get around to fixing the infrastructure, but we've got a gun violence problem in the meantime to yeah, fix. Yeah, absolutely. How do you deal with clients that want you to include things in your dashboard and you're thinking, that's not a good idea because it's going to drive your decision making in the wrong direction? That's a very difficult part of it. And we get that, I wouldn't say that often, but we get that occasionally. And City councillors who think they know how to do analysis. Yeah. And also, you know, sometimes the police chief has an idea. Steady. I'm scared. I'm scared already. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't want that on the, our dashboard. I don't want us analyzing that because I think it's bad, not inherently immoral, but sometimes mm -hmm. not the thing that a police department should be doing. So that's a conversation where you sort of have to move them off the X and point them to other shiny things. It's difficult and uncomfortable, I think, to have those conversations. But you have to have them, right? You have to have them because for us, it's our product. And I like to think that my analysis is usually of high quality. And if it's not, then why is it going out there? I've been reading some of your stuff in the New York Times and more in the national media. That's a very different kind of work. It is. It's usually me writing about 1,500 to 2,000 words, then an editor slicing it to about 700 words. You know, I've got every detail in there that I think is important, and sometimes you don't get all those in. A year ago, I managed to scoop the FBI on their UCR numbers, and the Times wanted to print it and make a big deal out of it, because we were first to report that there was a 30% increase in murder in 2020. People keep telling me that it's nothing to worry about. Yeah, well, 
It's only a few more thousand people as, murdered, right? As the writer, though, it was me writing everything that I could put in there. Right. And then you get criticized for things that were taken out. And it's fun to do that. It, I think, helps to build a profile, but it also is something that there's not a lot of national writers that go into the data. And I like to think I do it in a nonpartisan, dispassionate way, the same way I've been taught to write and analyze things. What sort of reaction do you get with some of this stuff? You're putting yourself out and your analysis out there and your interpretation of what's going on on a national stage. It's got to attract some crazies. <laughs> well, yeah, you get crazies, especially a lot of emotions around reporting that there's a 30% increase in murder that I thought was a big deal. And I think most people agreed, but Twitter is not real life. I get very positive praise from my family and, you know, my mom and dad are very proud. There you go. The, the praise, <laughs> that's, you know, the met, that's the metric we're going for. My uh, Uncle Herb loves them. So that's the type of uh, praise that I like. This is a shout out to Uncle Herb. <laughs> Uncle Herb, he just turned 90. So it's very rare, I think, that crime data is a story. I mean, for me, I think a 30% increase in murder is a big deal. Yeah. But you can't say that it's a big deal. You can contextualize it. If it's a 0% increase and there was no change or there was a 30% increase, the point of my writing is to factualize what the data says. And sometimes there's a lot of passion, I think, that comes with a lot of people that aren't able to conceptualize that somebody could say something without judging it, even if my judgment would be that, yeah, this is, yeah, this is, big, this is bad. Big deal. As former Vice President Joe Biden said, this is a big fucking deal. Yeah, a it, lot of people are getting murdered. It is, and it's not one or two places. And, you know, in the 90s, it was all New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. They were like 20% of the murders nationally. Right. Now they're like 6%. So it's so difficult to compare to the 90s, yet everyone wants to do it. Like, when I think about the Saints, my favorite football team, how are they doing? You don't say, well, in 1981, they were 1 in 15. So the fact that they're 2 and 4 now is not a big deal because they have twice as many wins. Right. You compare to where you want to be, not to the worst you've ever been. Yes. Who cares what the 90s were like? It's, it is, it's today. Well, I mean, I think probably half the police departments, most of those cops weren't born then. Yeah. It's not in their lifetime. There's a lot of discussion that, about whether the increases are due to COVID, due to post the murder of George Floyd. They happened around the same time. Is it possible to disentangle those? So I think you can sort of disentangle based on the timing. We know that through the first quarter of 2020, murder was up about 7%. You know as well as anyone that that could be noise or it could be something. Yeah. It's maybe suggestive that there was some sort of COVID relationship, but it wasn't enormous. And then you look and May, June, July, it was up substantially. And it's been at that level ever since. Right. Even though we're coming out of, there's another discussion about whether we should be coming out of sort of COVID restrictions, but we're clearly coming out of them. We've got a conference here where nobody's wearing a mask and we've got you know, tens of thousands of people here. So people are coming back to a life that resembles some semblance of normality, but the homicide rate's still high. Well, the homicide rate's still high, and so you want to point at, I know that there's a lot of discussion about this, this concept of depolicing, you know, police pulling back, but even that was somewhat short-lived in a lot of places, a lot of places where it didn't happen or you can't prove it happened, that saw dramatic increases. So. David Graham with The Atlantic had a great idea that I, I sort of attached to that we can sort of point to what a lot of the factors probably were, mm -hmm. what the ingredients were, but I don't think that we can rebuild the recipe yet. And I think that the role of police pulling back, very plausible as a factor. I do think that the, this concept of trust in police, that if people don't trust the police, they're more likely to take things into their own hands. They're maybe just more likely to have a fire on, on them in the first place. Right. And murders are such a low base rate crime. 
if you get a thousand more murders just because a thousand people were carrying a gun instead of a, a knife, then you've suddenly explained half or a third of the yeah. increase. So many more firearms available. You have all of these ingredients and more people are carrying firearms. I mean, I know that in Philadelphia, the number of stops that the police department are doing has dropped precipitously. It is a small fraction of where it used to be. But the actual raw number of guns they're recovering is increased to a large number than they've ever had. Either they've become geniuses right. at finding guns or just everybody's carrying guns. Well, and it's not just Philadelphia. It's, and that's what we found. We had 10 cities where we had the same effect. And so I do think that if everyone's carrying guns, and we know that this last year in 2021, 80% of murders that were reported to the FBI were via firearm, compared to 10 years ago, it was 65%. So I'm about to make everybody who's listening to the podcast switch off because this is a horribly statistically nerdy point. But when you do a thing called zero inflated regression, and yeah, you can just hear everybody <laughs> reaching for the volume control or the off knob, but you've got a two stage, which is if you're looking for some rare event, what are the factors that drove it from not happening to happening? And then what are the factors that drove it to happening a lot? And they're two different stages. So going from not something happening to happening can be one set of factors. But then once you've got it, what sustains it or what makes it increase exactly. in volume can be a different group of things. And I, that may be where we are. I think it is. And we really don't fully understand what happened in the 90s yeah. and murder going down. And especially murder sort of sustaining from 2000 to 2016, really. So I, we're so close to the event. I think that for now, the best we're going to be able to do is contribute what some of the factors are. And I think that the closer a person is to studying it, the less certain they should be. And I know that's really hard for people to express uncertainty in a way that acknowledges what we know and what we don't know. The more somebody who just came on the subject and wants to write a 3,000 word blog on why murder went up, that person is not going to acknowledge any of this uncertainty. Yes. And then they're arguably not qualified right. to understand the nuance. I mean, they're almost outing themselves as a Dunning-Kruger. Quick editorial side note here on Dunning-Kruger. I'm using the phrase as a derogatory term, to be honest, to refer to a person with low levels of expertise, but who thinks that they have more insight, skill or knowledge than they actually have. You know, like just about everyone on Twitter. It has its origins in the work of psychologists David Dunning and Justin Kruger from 20 years ago. Google the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's quite interesting. And then they're arguably not qualified right. to understand the nuance. I mean, they're almost outing themselves as a Dunning-Kruger. Yeah, and I know you want to talk about Nibers. Like, we're, we're talking about a system where our data is so flawed. Oh, believe me, I don't want to talk about <laughs> Nibers. I don't want to talk about you Nibers. You feel obliged to talk about I feel about obliged Nibers. to talk about the... Yeah, the mess, the, the cluster that is um, the Nibers at the moment. Anybody taking in any data that doesn't acknowledge just how bad it is, is doing themselves a disservice. We've got this change from UCR, which has been the way we've done things. I mean, it's bad, but it was reliably bad for mm -hmm. decades to this whole new system. For the three listeners from outside the United States <laughs> who have stuck with us after talking about zero inflated regression, I'm gonna regret anything like that. <laughs> Take two seconds to explain what UCR is for folk, and then we'll talk about the wonderful shit show that is NIBAS. So UCR is the Uniform Crime Report. It is the standard by which agencies report for 49 states to their state program, and the state programs get all the data together and send it up to the FBI. The FBI puts it all together and puts out a report. Traditionally, it's been under what's called the Summary Reporting System, SRS, which they've measured seven crime types 
they had 18,000 police departments, law enforcement agencies across the country that usually they got between 95 and 97% participation rate. So you're missing a couple, but... Pretty much everybody was fat, dumb, and happy for decades. This is how we do it. It's not great, but it's reliably bad, but you know what you're getting. Yeah, we have it year after year since 1960. And for some agencies, it's back to 1930. Yeah. So there is a value in that consistency. But now... Now, so... <laughs> In the 80s, they came up with the system NIBRS. NIBRS stands for? National Incident-Based Reporting System. So they introduced it in the 80s. Agencies began reporting really in the 1990s. And they're at 30, 35% participation. So it's been around since the 90s. Yes. But like everything, unfortunately, around this, it's voluntary. The states essentially run it. And they have their agents, their police departments report to them, and then they report the figures centrally to the FBI. So this really is run by the states. Yeah, it's run by the states other than Mississippi, which doesn't have a state UCR program. Marvelous. Yeah. <laughs> we could do a whole, whole different podcast on Mississippi, but I don't think anybody would be interested in that. People from Mississippi, but also, it's, yeah, yeah, <laughs> even then. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. So they have this system. It's voluntary. And in 2015, they basically make the decision, this is going to be the system. If you haven't reported it by the start of 2021, you're just done. We'll give you money, we'll give you training, we'll do our best, but it's voluntary. And for a lot of agencies, especially small ones, but some big ones as well, it's really expensive and complicated because instead of collecting a couple dozen data points, you're collecting over a hundred. So does this requiring them to think about just buying new RMS systems and data recording systems? Is that? Yeah, for a lot of agencies, they need a new RMS. Record management system. Yeah, they need new equipment. They have to train up all of their people. It's not just Sally in, in your admin department that needs it. It's every agent, Poor every Sally. officer. She was just about to retire <laughs> as well. She, she was. She was two weeks from retirement. Every officer in your agency needs to know how to input the data correctly because you're, you're collecting so much information. So if you want to know how many kidnappings at a Michigan daycare center happened in 2020, you could do that with NIBRS. So I know you care about daycare centers because you're a bloke with, what, four kids? Four kids, yeah. Only three still in daycare, though. Yeah, but triplets, right? Triplets, yeah. Four-year-old triplets and a six-year-old. How do you even just turn up to work? Send help, listeners. Send help. Um, <laughs> so they've, they've got this system, but they're starting with 35% of agencies are reporting. Right. And in 2015, it was going to be meant they had six years. Agencies had six years to transition. And in 2021, only 65% of the U.S. population was covered by an agency that reported via NIBRS compared to 97% under the old system. Right, but as a college professor, I know that it doesn't matter whether I give my students a deadline of a week, a month, or in this case, six years, they will do the assignment the day before it's due. Yeah. And, or on the day. And a ton haven't. New York Police Department hasn't. Los Angeles Police Department hasn't. Chicago Police Department did seven months. So we're basically getting zero data out of some of the largest cities in the country. Yes. It's all going swimmingly it's not well. Just, it's not just a big city thing. It's you know, small towns, mm -hmm. small counties, it's everywhere. You know, they haven't done it for different reasons probably, but there hasn't been this pressure. They only had 52% of the US population was covered by a law enforcement agency that reported 12 months of data. Philly did not do 12 months. I think they did seven. Believe me, that's not the worst of the problems we have to no, face. No, We're changing, you know, we're changing the city motto. Yeah, it used to be the city of brotherly love. And now it's, oh shit, what was that? <laughs> That uh, sounds like New Orleans. We have a lot in common, yeah. despite our uh, our differences. Uh, Saints lost. Awesome. Sorry, you, you can edit that out. No, that's, no, that's <laughs> fine. You do tweet an interesting mix of data and how bad are the Saints right now? They are apparently pretty bad. Now, is that an emotion call or is that an objective call? 
They're probably better in my brain than in my heart right now. Eagles are on a roll right they now. They are. They are. They're good. Yeah. Fortunately, we gave you our first round draft pick next year. It's, it's bad. Um, <laughs> all right, this interview's over. <laughs> all right, let me get serious again. Let's come back to Nibus for a moment. Is it worth the pain? When we get there, will it be worth it? Will we ever get there? I'm a believer that we'll get there. I still think it's conceptually antiquated in that if you follow a baseball game within a split second, you can tell everything that's happened on the field in every stadium in both major leagues and minor leagues. Mm -hmm. And with Nibers, the best case is still going to be nine or 10 months delay. It'll be good for researchers. It'll be great for researchers, but it'll take a decade or two where you have enough years of 90 something percent reporting. It's never going to be during my professional life. That's good to know. Probably not. I mean, in theory, you could... Yes, I know I have youthful good looks, but that's only because I'm preserved by alcohol. But bottom line is, yeah, if it's going to be a decade and a half, I'm going to be on a tropical island by then. I think they'll probably hit the 80, 90 percent in the next three or four years, I hope. The problem is, if you have one year of data, the the advantage of SRS was you had 60, 90 years of Mm. data the exact same. Yeah. And if you only have a few years of data, you can barely make out a trend. But we, we come back to the point of what is the point of data that's released nine or 10 months after the year ends? Right. So here we end up with this challenge, which is data that's good for trends and strategic use comes out way too slowly. Yeah. But it's arguably a forest. And then what we get is just endless bombardment with dashboards and instant updates every single day about what happened with a particular tree. There's, it's almost like there's no middle ground that allows good strategic thinking in a reasonable time frame to actually use it. That's kind of the thought process. We have a year-to-date murder dashboard. I have thoughts on year-to-date. You do have thoughts on year-to-date. I'm aware of your thoughts on year-to-date. And the listeners can't see the hole in my head that your eyes are burning right now. (laughs) But I think the advantage is that when we have 90 cities together Mm -hmm. through reasonably similar timeframes, we're able to develop a picture of what is happening nationally in a way that you can't through any other. You have to wait months or years. Where I hate it is where people say, well, let's compare where we are in January to last January. No, show me a whole year of that. Show show me what's been happening, a trend over the last year, not compared January to January. What we do, we don't even publish in the first couple of months of the year. I think April was when we first gathered the data. We have a graph showing just how off you're going to be if you have 50 cities of data. And really, it's the months that end in R. Once you get to those, you're going to be reasonably close. Right. So you do a lot of this work by going to departments' websites. Mm-hmm. Do we need NIBAs? I have to uh, thank a conversation I was having with Shaley Highland about this. Is open data is it going to replace the need for NIBAs? Is it going to become more, essentially more valuable? Now we're on the same team. If you had 500 cities that produce standardized open data mm-hmm. from their RMS where you're not relying on the PDF that they put out once a week, but that you had... Oh, please stop putting things out as PDFs. <laughs> I know. It's <laughs> no, awful, isn't it? Scanned-in PDFs are by far the worst. <laughs> With Sally's handwriting all over. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, 14 murders. Is that four or nine? <laughs> but if you had this standardization of CAD data, calls for service data, 911 data, or RMS data from enough cities, and they could do it. Enough cities do this. They just don't do it in a standardized way, and you had it publicly available so that 
someone like us or a researcher could put it all in one place so that you could see crime trends in the top 500 cities. If there's like, tw if there's like 21,000 murders, do we care for the where it's plus or minus 10 at the end of the day? Exactly, and we've got this system where we want to track. It tells you the strategic big picture trends. And it tells you in near real time because we have the technology that using a free software, you could put 500 cities together and build a 12-month rolling average of murder in those 500 cities, it would take a little bit of effort, but give me Nybers' budget and <laughs> I'll produce a much better data product. Right. Well, give me Nybers' budget and I'll, I'll move to that tropical island <laughs> right. a bit earlier. I mean, is that the future of Nybers? Should Nybers just start scraping from public websites and data sources in cities? They should bribe police agencies to report RMS data in their open data feed and train them to do it in a standardized format. And with a couple hundred agencies, you can say the national trend. And if they can do it in Major League Baseball, we can do it nationally for crime. Right, but they have a financial incentive in Major League Baseball. Well, but we have government resources. Right, but our, they have a financial incentive <laughs> in Major League Baseball. Our, our, our financial incentive, though, is that we're wasting money on a bad system. Has anybody ever been fired for wasting government money? <laughs> Probably at some point, if it gets criminal, I assume. I just love the fact that you're ever so slightly hinting that the incompetence around Nybos is borderline criminal. <laughs> No, I don't, I don't think it's criminal. I think, it, I think the people did their best. But you go back and you look at 2019, FBI is saying we're going to get 80% of people reporting. Wonderfully idealistic. And COVID happens and they don't push it back. And it was clear that they weren't going to get anywhere close. And they put out these estimates and these estimates are rough. I mean, there's a, a huge cost to estimating from... 97% participation to 60, 65% participation. Yeah. The confidence intervals, for, get, uh, it's nerd city now, but the confidence yeah. intervals just start to balloon. I mean, they, they gave a murder estimate and it was either up 4%, down 7% or up 12%. Were they drunk? So those were the close estimate. Those were the, the small. You had property crime where it was, I think like up 38% or minus 50%. <sighs> and that was, is it ever going to get better? I think once you get 90%. But some of these departments are just not up to this. I think most departments will get there. But the issue is that at this critical moment, right now, we've had a 30% increase in murder. We'd like to see policies that reduce it. And you've got this system that won't tell you whether or not what you're doing is working. From and an evidence-based policing perspective, this data is useless right now. Right. It is. It is. And we constantly, as consultants, get questions of, you know, what city should we look after where what they're doing is working? And you're like, oh, well, this city saw 12% decrease after a 40% increase, is what they're doing working? Or is it random noise? Yeah, and we can't tell. We can't tell, and we'll never be able to tell because by the time we get good data... Everything's moved on. Yeah. To drag away from all the problems, because we could probably speak for three or four more episodes on that, what do you like about NIBA's data? Where, where do you think are the opportunities for people to really learn what's going on? And the opportunities are that you can understand every incident that happens in your city to a degree that you couldn't before they are going to add non-fatal shooting injury as a category, so as a checkbox, essentially. So in th that's going to be in 2023. So right now, we're not really clear about shootings. They're still lobbed in with aggravated assaults and robberies. And yes, and they, they still will be, but you'll be able to, to check this incident. There was one non-fatal shooting victim. Okay. I mean, it's a shame we don't have that right now, given the awful increase in gun violence we've had. That's another thing where open data could bridge that gap. Philadelphia Police Department does an incredible job of producing shooting data. We have a lot of shootings. And you've got great data with it. Who's going to use this? Who do you think are, are the potential customers for this data that could really turn it into something useful? Well, in theory, cities, once they've made the transition, should benefit. And they should 
they should have more knowledge of what's happening within their their agency. But that requires analysts. It, well, it requires analysts and it requires having made the transition. Right. The agencies that got a head start, the ones that have been doing this for years, are probably the places that people are going to benefit the most. NYPD, which is the crazy thing, NYPD has this data available on their open data. I can tell you how many murders there were in New York in 2021. Yeah, their open data seems pretty good. I've used it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. They have shooting data. It's great. But they can't tell the FBI and the FBI won't publish how many murders they had in 2021. And that's the problem. What's going on? Because they didn't report via NIBRS and they're only accepting data that's reported via NIBRS. Oh my goodness. What are the lessons to learn from this? I mean, if you were in charge of the whole thing, what would you have done? If I was in charge, I would have thought bigger about what other possibilities exist. I think that the mistake is that we've got this 1930s system that we're thinking about as the improvements to the 1980s system. We're not thinking about how do we build a 21st century data collection system. I started in policing in the 1980s. Yes, I'm that old. <laughs> Thanks. You know, nobody had computers. Nobody was thinking in the 1980s about, well, we'll just have ev all data will all be online and we can just go and download it from cities. No, not in the 1980s, but in 2015, right. you could have thought that. And so I think that they reached this point where they either, I assume they wanted to either use Nibers as the system or get out. And I think that they maybe chose the wrong path there, that you've kind of got things sort of plodding along and plodding along, but it doesn't solve the fact that the data is useless until 10 months after the year has ended, right. and you can't use it in near real time. Theoretically, you should just be able to plug the data in and just turn it around. Why is it taking nine months? They give agencies, I think, until March to report the data. The data doesn't go straight to the FBI. It goes agency to state UCR program to FBI, and then they have to audit everything. I feel like they've shifted the onus to some degree onto the frontline officer to do better data entry at the point of entry. Because I think a lot of departments I've seen, they have kind of like UCR departments that clean up their own shitty data before they f push it forward. But this seems like it's harder for them to do that now, and this is more about the point of entry data. Well, yeah, now you're talking about 100 different data points rather right. than like five data points. So you're really, really hoping that the officer put and the supervisors are, are, are monitoring this. So yeah, and they have to be trained. They have to know how to do it. They have to know what to do. Because there are cops who will skip call. I mean, this is the same friend, but it's not just policing. But if you're, if you're asking me to fill out a massive form and I start skipping a few rows and you never call me on it, I'm never filling out those rows yeah. again because I've got other shit to do. Especially if you're a new agency, you've never really received the training on it. You're, it's a new system yeah. and it's, it's a difficult new process. And you've never recorded that stuff before. So you're not automatically thinking that when you go to a burglary to record all this other stuff. Yeah. I think it certainly adds a degree of difficulty that never existed before. And then you pull it all up and you've got a degree of difficulty on the FBI and BJS and RTI, the contractor that they worked with to build the estimates. And the estimates were clearly troubling. Should they have not published them? I, I think that that would probably have been better. They should have just left well alone for a year and just tried to, and just muddled on. I, we, you know, our year-to-day dashboard at the end of the year showed a 6% increase in 99 cities, I think, of data. Um, other places showed between 5 and 6%. And we know that if you take big cities, they tend to overstate the national trend. So a 6% nationally, I think I said was a 3 to 5% likely increase nationally. That I probably should have been sufficient that we knew that. I don't... I don't know that saying that there were between 21,000 and 24,000 murders last year says a lot. <laughs> Is it easy just working in baseball or football? Probably. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you get a math wizard with a computer, they, they solve all your problems and show you strategies. 
here. It's like life or death stuff, literally. And we have the world's worst data collection system. And chances are probably because we don't know what's going on and we don't know what to do about it, probably people are dying unnecessarily. Yeah. Well, that's a nice cheery thought to finish <laughs> with, right? <laughs> and the Saints lost, so... <laughs> yeah, and the Saints lost. On oh, the plus side, look at it this way. I mean, how old are the triplets? The triplets are four. And what are their names again? Jacob, Grant, and Vivian. There you Now, by the time they're adults, we might have Nivers up to uh, 90%. And by the time they're adults, they will be out of the house, and I will uh, be able to relax a little bit. So. Yeah, you, I'm amazed at how much you actually get done, considering <laughs> you, you, you must come to work for a rest, don't you? Uh, I do. The weekends are tough. The, the weekdays when they're out of school are the, the easy parts where I just get to work. Have you learned to just work in the, in the small windows when there's relative peace and quiet in the house? On weekends, usually we do quiet time for a couple of hours. <laughs> Does that work? And they sit on iPads now. They've reached that point. It's challenging, but I'm going to have how many kidneys to choose from as a donor <laughs> soon. So you got to look on the bright side of these things. <laughs> Marvelous. Hey, look, I know you're uh, running a booth here at IACP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police meeting, um, but for taking a bit of time to come out and speak to me. Thanks very much indeed, mate. Thanks I appreciate it. And for people listening in before we disappear, if you go to reducingcrime.com slash podcast and look for the entry for this episode with Jeff, I'll put up links to the articles that we've been talking about. Thanks for joining us. That was episode 54 of Reducing Crime recorded in Dallas, Texas in October 2022. Transcripts of this and every episode look at reducingcrime.com slash podcast. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime. Subscribe, why don't you, at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much anywhere so you don't miss an episode. Be safe and best of luck. Thank you.